Stay Current is a multimedia publication designed to keep healthcare professionals up to date with standards of care and new emerging ideas. This chapter is created and edited by Todd Konsky, Sophia Abdulhai, Abdulruf Lamoshi, and Rajavendra Rao, and is recorded and produced at Akron Children's Hospital in Akron, Ohio. Welcome to Stay Current in Pediatric Surgery. This is Todd Ponsky recording from Akron Children's Hospital. And today we're going to be talking about a topic I've been hoping to do over the past couple of years, and that is gastroesophageal reflux and talking about the role of the Nissen fundoplication or any surgical intervention. And I've been trying to figure out how do we do this and who do we have on the panel and how do we get down to the workup, diagnosis, and treatment. And uh, a little story here, I was in Sicily and I met a pediatric gastroenterologist from Boston Children's Hospital. His name was Victor Fox, and I asked him about who he thought would be the, the world's expert in this and in his world in pediatric GI, and he didn't hesitate a second and said it would be Dr. Rachel Rosen. And we are very fortunate to have Dr. Rachel Rosen here with us today to speak about a lot of these controversies in pediatric reflux. Dr. Rosen is the director of the Aerodigestive Center at Boston Children's Hospital. She's associate professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. She's a pediatric gastroenterologist at Boston Children's, but she really specializes in motility. So, Rachel, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And to make it more fun, we got a surgeon here with us, definitely uh, someone we've had on the, the podcast before, Dr. Whit Holcomb. Uh, Dr. Holcomb is the Senior Vice President of Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. He is the editor-in-chief of our journal, the Journal of Pediatric Surgery, and the author of the textbook that uh, most of us use in pediatric surgery, and definitely uh, has been on the forefront of the laparoscopic Nissen fundoplication, and Mercy uh, Hospital has been also a, a point of interest from a re- surgical reflux uh, solution as they've, they've talked about and, and written about all sorts of different surgical therapies for reflux. So I wanted to get some discussion going. This might be different than previous podcasts as we might have some disagreement, which uh, most of you know I love, and that helps us figure out what the right thing to do is. So, uh, Whit, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here, Todd. So let's jump right into it, and we'll go through a few cases, and uh, we'll, we'll try to see what each of you think about uh, the answers to these questions. So first, Rachel, let me start with you. Let's say you get called about a six-month-old patient who has had some vomiting, uh, and they've had some respiratory symptoms, coughing, wheezing, and they've also had a little bit of failure to thrive as well. How do you start off working up this patient? Yeah, that's a fairly typical patient that we have in the aerodigestive center. So I think from a GI perspective, what we have to figure out first is, is reflux really the issue, which is often the reason that they're referred to us, or is there something else going on? And I think in our experience, the vast majority of kids who have vomiting, respiratory symptoms, wheezing, are more likely to have oropharyngeal dysphagia and aspiration during swallowing than gastroesophageal reflux. And I think for us, our first goal is to figure out, you know, what's the real problem, or are we being fooled by uh, symptoms that could mimic both? And so 
usually in these kids' cases, we rarely would uh, proceed without a video fluoroscopic study to start with, which I know we're talking about reflux, but the number one masquerader that we see in kids this age who have respiratory symptoms and vomiting is aspiration. So that's probably where I would start. And then if that's normal, then we have to go down the, the consideration of reflux diagnoses and other things that might be going on. All right, so how do you, where do you go from there? So let's say you do yeah. the, the swallow study and it's, it shows no uh, penetration from above. Yeah, so I think then the next step that we have to figure out is is GI is there a GI cause for it? And if we think it's reflux, is it just run-of-the-mill reflux based on this child's age where the peak age of reflux is between four and six months of age? Or is there something else like food allergy, which again, when we think about big masqueraders for us, it's, you know, is this kid have a milk protein intolerance where the presenting symptom is exactly this with vomiting and respiratory symptoms. So, and I know we're going to talk about therapies, but one of the things that we would do if we saw this kid out of the bat, off the bat is, you know, do we thicken their feeds? Do we change their formula? Do we start with some of those non-invasive things before we even do any diagnostic testing in a, in a child this young? Okay. That, so I like that. So let's say you, you try those methods, you thicken the formula, mm -hmm. and they still have persistent symptoms. Yeah, so that, this is where we, again, tend to go down the multidisciplinary approach where we would potentially scope this patient with both pulmonary and otolaryngology joining in. We would rarely start with a probe in this age group, again, because what we're interested in is masqueraders. We would rarely put a baby like this on proton pump inhibitors. There's more and more evidence in children under the age of one that they're not beneficial because these kids, what they're refluxing is non-acidic gastric content. So when you think about what babies reflux, babies reflux milk. They're fed basically every two to three hours. And when you look at the normal gastric emptying of infants, uh, they still have milk in their stomach for up to two to three hours. It's only once you get to the three-hour mark where you start getting acid production. Wow. And so, um, you know, proton pump inhibitors just aren't going to help in this age group where they're really refluxing non-acid reflux. So a pH probe would not be helpful typically in these in these young kids. Let me stop you there because yeah, already, sure. already I'm so happy we are doing this because I'm already learning here. So tell me the age group when you say that that acid reflux, you said it's one to four months, is that what you said? So in, in any kid that's fed every two to three hours, you're not going to see significant acid production because wow. they still have, have milk or formula in their stomach. So when we start thinking about acid, we start thinking about kids who have had nothing to eat or drink for three to four hours after a meal mm -hmm. is when we start seeing the pH probe start to pick up acid, for example. So if you are very interested in that postprandial period, where kids are having symptoms and the kid is less than one, you really need to think about how can I measure non-acid reflux or how can I measure milk coming up into the esophagus. It's not enough just to do a pH probe and measure acid. Okay. And also, I'm assuming then this, uh, this goes without saying based on what you just said, but the, the neonates and the risk of, or a preemie, and the risk of getting necrotizing enterocolitis from uh, anti-reflux meds, is that, uh, is, that a true sta is that a true thing? Yeah, I mean, uh, your your point is an excellent one. We worry about all kinds of infections in this age group. So, you know, studies have shown both with H2 blockers and PPIs, you can get sepsis, UTIs, uh, necrotizing enterocolitis. Kids are at increased risk for pneumonias, pharyngitis, upper respiratory infections, and then just GI bugs as well as C. diff. So we're very worried about the microbiome changes in these kids. And so we think very hard about 
what their differential is before we just throw them on antacids. This is great. So let me make sure I got this right. The, the six-month-old comes to you. Uh, you you do your work for oral pharyngeal stuff. Mm-hmm. You try uh, food allergy treatments. You thicken the feeds. You try those things. What you would not do is s- treat them with a PPI to see if it helps. Uh, Correct. Okay. So that's a the, big... Sorry. Go ahead. Especially in this case with the, where you have respiratory symptoms as a predominant symptom, yep. the last thing you want to do is push them over the edge with more respiratory symptoms by prescribing a proton pump inhibitor. I love this. Okay. and But you would do an endoscopy. Yep. Okay. And what are you looking for on endoscopy? Yeah, so the main thing I'm really looking for is eosinophilic esophagitis because what I want to make sure of is that we're not dealing with esophageal inflammation related to food allergy. And I think one of the most controversial things, at least in the PGI world, is do you scope before you've tried them on an antacid or do you scope after you've tried them on a trial? And I think, especially in the air digestive population where I don't want to start a proton pump inhibitor, I think it's important to scope early so you have some idea of what's going on. You can give a definitive diagnosis, which if you treat them with proton some pump inhibitors, the esophagus in many cases is going to heal, and then you don't know what you're treating. Okay, so I have so many questions that I'm really wondering if we're going to get through all this and may have to do a part two, but I don't want to skip this because I think it's important. You talked about EOE, eosinophilic esophagitis. I'll mm-hmm. tell you that we have thousands of listeners from different countries, and I'm not sure that this is as prevalent or discussed in every part of the world. Can you give me a brief synopsis of EOE? and what it is and what we should look out for and how we treat it. Yeah, sure. So eosinophilic esophagitis is an allergic condition of the esophagus that uh, presents with a variety of symptoms. In kids under the age of five, the biggest, most common presentation is actually chronic cough. So when you're looking at young kids, number one presentation is cough. Number two presentation can be vomiting or failure to thrive. So in this kid's case, it's high on my differential diagnosis. Um, When you scope all kids under the age of five or so who are presenting with respiratory symptoms, you'll find this allergic or eosinophilic esophagitis in about 10% of kids. So it's fairly common when we do endoscopies. In older kids, this will present with chest pain, food impactions, dysphagia. Those are the main symptoms in the older kids. So these are the kids that we get called in in the middle of the night because of a chicken impaction or yeah. or other food impactions. But in this young age group, which is what this case is, the presentation is cough um, and, and growth issues. So a um, couple questions. First, I want to point out to the listeners out there, this has been very new for me, maybe only over the last five years that I've really seen so much of this now. Um, all of these, these children coming in, as you mentioned, with food impaction, they, they so frequently turn out to have eosinophilic esophagitis. And it, if you may, in your region, may not be a big uh, problem that's discussed a lot, I can tell you that it's, uh, we're finding it more and more. Um, how do you treat them? Yeah, so I think um, when you go through kind of the treatment or the diagnostic algorithm of kids who are presenting, for example, with vomiting, your point is critical, which is that you really need to scope every kid before they would get a Nissen because you don't want to wrap a kid who has allergic esophagitis or eosinophilic esophagitis, and I, I can't stress that enough. So you do the initial endoscopy, you see that there's eosinophils there. The old tenet used to be, okay, then you treat them with a proton pump inhibitor and you see, does that esophagitis? go 
away. If it goes away, it's reflux. If it doesn't go away, it's eosinophilic esophagitis. Okay. In the in the new criteria, that's yeah. no longer the case. So okay. now there's a whole other category: proton pump inhibitor responsive eosinophilic esophagitis. So there's now allergic disease that responds to proton pump inhibitors. So the long and short of it is. If you have inflammation of the esophagus, you can treat with a proton pump inhibitor, or you may go down the route of changing kids' diets, taking out allergens, or even giving them steroids. Okay. And what is it that they eliminate? Is it eggs? And I don't even remember. What What do you limit? Yeah. So if you're yeah. if you're a betting person, the most likely thing the kids are allergic to is dairy in about 60 to 70% of kids. So this is why in our reflux algorithm, the first thing that we change is to a, a non-dairy or a protein hydrolysate formula, partially hydrolysate formula, or an amino acid-based formula. So we take dairy out as our first step. Okay. Some, some centers do allergy testing. Others don't. Others eliminate the big allergens, milk, soy, wheat egg. Um, so every center is a little bit different. Got it. And um, so uh, right now we have this child. We've we've uh, done the the swallow, floral swallow study. We've done the, these allergy. We've done an endoscopy. We've looked for food allergies. We've tried mm-hmm. different things. Um, before we move forward, and Wit, I want to invite you at any point in time to either chime in if you disagree, agree, or have a question for Rachel. But so far, does this correlate with what you guys do in Kansas City? Well, yes and no, in that um, one thing Rachel has uh, talked about, which I think is a great idea, but very few other places have created, is a really a multidisciplinary clinic, an aerodigestive clinic, so that you're working in tandem with your uh, otolaryngologists, your GI doctors, perhaps your surgeons. And so I think that's really wonderful. We feel like we have a very close working relationship with our GI doctors, uh, but we have not developed such a multidisciplinary approach that uh, she and our colleagues have in Boston. So uh, they are to be congratulated. I think she's raised uh, some good points. And and the reason, and this is really the reason that I don't believe that the surgeons should be the ones doing the workup of these children. So, you know, when I came to Kansas City, 18 years ago, a lot of the pediatricians were sending patients directly to the uh, surgeons uh, for evaluation and management of reflux disease. Some of that was due to the fact that at the time uh, we had uh, really two GI doctors. Uh, Now we have, I don't know, 25 or so. And so in all honesty, they didn't have as much time to be evaluating the uh, infants and children back then and now we have a better manpower situation. Uh, so at least if a if a patient is sent to me initially, which really doesn't happen very much uh, anymore, then I send them to our GI colleagues for their upfront evaluation because I think she's right. I, You know, I don't think that I've ever wrapped a child with eosinophilic esophagitis, but I certainly don't want to do that. And I don't believe that the surgeon, especially myself, is the best person to be evaluating all these other conditions that may be in play. And so it's uh, it's my feeling that the patients ought to be worked up and evaluated by the gastroenterologist, perhaps the otolaryngologist. And then if it's felt that they have a disease that's amenable to an operation, in this case a, a fundoplication, then the surgeon gets involved. So so I really agree with what she has said, and I congratulate her and her colleagues for establishing such a multidisciplinary approach. 
and let me let me uh, second that. That I want to highlight that point to everyone listening. That we also would often get sent maybe babies in the NICU who they call us for to evaluate for a Nissen, and they they are not always consulted GI first. And I think that that's a fantastic point that should become a standard at least. Uh, if you, if you, a lot of people may disagree with this, but I, I agree that that should. The first step is why don't you uh, consult gastroenterology first, and then uh, we'll follow along. So Rachel, you've done your endoscopy. It does not look like EOE. Now what? Yeah. So again, I think what I'm going to tell you is probably not the approach that many centers use, but I can give you kind of what we would do from a next step with a kid like this. If I have a kid who's vomiting and has respiratory symptoms, their scope is normal. I don't want to put them on a proton pump inhibitor. This would be a kid, for example, that I might go straight, for example, to a macrolide to manage their symptoms, which I know sounds a little bit unconventional, but we use a lot of erythromycin in these babies who have respiratory symptoms. So macrolides are helpful. They're um, modal and agonist, they make the stomach, the antrum of the stomach contract, and they can help with vomiting. But perhaps most importantly, the secondary benefit is it's an anti-inflammatory for the airway and lungs. So if I have a baby who has respiratory symptoms and has vomiting as a predominant symptom, I will often just put them on a macrolide uh, to help with their vomiting and respiratory symptoms, and that's often enough to get them over the hump if the conservative measures like thickening haven't improved their symptoms. So I know it's not the most traditional approach, but it's something that we are now doing pretty mainstream in kids with pulmonary symptoms. So that's novel to me, and maybe our GI people are doing that. So again, I want to repeat, it sounds like if you do suspect it, you haven't quite yet done any kind of study that I've heard yeah. thus far Correct. to make the diagnosis. So you treat with a macrolide, erythromycin, yeah. and you watch them and see how they do initially, is that, and yeah. not a PPI. That's correct. And I think you get to one of the key points, which is at what point do you test? And it's really hard because the role, for example, of using a catheter like impedance probe or pH probe, um, the best time to do that is in a kid who has daily symptoms, right? So there's no great normal values for the number of reflux episodes in a patient for pediatrics. Um, And I think that that's what's really hard. So you do a probe and you get a number of reflux episodes. Well, is that normal, abnormal? There's no, there's no great number. So the best that we can do is try to correlate symptoms with reflux episodes on the probe. And so in this kid's case, where wheezing is the predominant symptom, it's much more intangible than, say, cough. If this baby had coughing, then, that, then I would say, you know what, let's do a probe and see what we're dealing with because I can correlate cough with reflux episodes. But for a more nebulous symptom like wheezing, it's a, trickier, it's a trickier thing. So that's why you're not hearing me say let's run to testing in this child. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you, Rachel, I, I'm curious what Witt says. I, over the years, have become less interested in any testing. I think so many of them have become just not helpful in my decision tree. I'm curious to hear what you teach us here, but more and more we've I've not found as much value in pH impedance in the the milk emptying study, any of these things to help make the diagnosis and we're going to obviously get into that soon. so let me ask you so you do the when you do the the macrolide and um, you change the diet. And they're still having failure to thrive, and it's been, let's say, a month now. Mm-hmm. Now what? 
Yeah, so again, this is my bias. This is the medical bias, but in my opinion, that's rarely because of gastroesophageal reflux. So I would go down a very big other differential before running to think about something like a surgical intervention for reflux. And again, I think this is just the medical bias that rarely in is reflux a problem, especially when I know this kid is at six months of age, the peak age, they should reflux should be improving if solid food is introduced. So if this is reflux, I'm going to try to buy as much time with management. If this kid was nine or ten months of age, we may be having a different story, but even then reflux in our in my opinion is rarely a cause for okay. for these symptoms. So still you keep going with the uh erythromycin, the the different mm-hmm. food changes Really, in your head, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, Rachel, so correct me if I'm saying this wrong. In your head, reflux is kind of low on the list here. So you're going to really work hard over the months to try to find what else might be causing this other than reflux. So you're not jumping to doing pH impedance or anything right Mm -hmm. away. Okay. Correct. Wit. Um, And by the way, I want to, in a minute, go to the most common patient we get, which is the newborn in the NICU. Mm -hmm. But, But before we get there, Wit. Do you disagree, agree with anything that's been said so far? Uh, No, I don't. I think that um, what Rachel has described really are are changes and modifications that have occurred over the past decade or two, and a lot of it's because we learn or we know so much more now than we did, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. So I I think her approach is, is very reasonable. I will just make one correction, Todd, and I I think because you had mentioned that she has not done any testing now, but it was my understanding that she had done an endoscopy uh, now. So I just wanted to make sure that the audience appreciated that she has done an endoscopy looking for uh, eosinophilic esophagitis. And so I would consider that a test that's been done so far. You're right, Whit, and, and I, I thank you for pointing that out. And actually, so let me use that as another question. Would you get an upper GI to make sure their anatomy is normal? Yeah, so that's a tricky issue and because our rate of positive upper GIs is pretty low in exactly. kids. Yep. I think if you're having true failure to thrive and can't get the kid to gain, you're pretty much obligated to get an upper GI to make sure things look okay. And I'm looking as much for malrotation as I am for, you know, a variety of other things. I mean, if you're going to get your video fluoroscopic study at our hospital, we use that to look at TEFs. In just to make sure, again, we're not looking for other diagnoses that are going on. So I think once, if if you're dealing with a happy spitter who's wheezing, I wouldn't do an upper GI. But if you're trying to feed this kid and can't get the calories in because of the vomiting so significant, then absolutely you're obligated to get some barium imaging. Todd, I think Rachel's made a good point that I think gradually uh, clinicians, whether it's surgeon or gastroenterologist or primary care providers, are getting the message out is that a, an upper GI is really not a good study for reflux. And so, but at the same time, in the past, studies been done to evaluate for reflux, and it's really not a good study. And we've shown and others have shown in numerous studies that it doesn't, um, it doesn't document reflux very well. And the reason really is that if their child's not refluxing right when the radiology technician uh, steps on the uh, pedal to take the x-ray, then it's not going to show reflux. And so an upper GI is uh, is useful 
for identifying any uh, anatomical problems. It's just that that doesn't happen very often. We did a study, as you know, in a large number of patients in which the upper GI was done and pH studies were done. This was a few years ago. And really, the upper GI uh, did not help with diagnosing the reflux, but it did help identifying an anatomical problem in about 4% of patients. So the incidence of anatomical problems is not high, but at the same time, that's a a relatively uh, easily correctable problem in most cases. So I think I would, I love the point you made, and to add that, even if the upper GI does show reflux, it doesn't mean anything because everyone refluxes. So for both reasons, it's not helpful to diagnose it. And I, I love the point that you and Rachel both alluded to, and that the incidence of a malrotation or an anatomic anomaly causing this is so low that we may not need to be as aggressive with getting these in everyone. And Rachel, I love how you put it, the happy... Uh, Weezer doesn't necessarily need it, but a true failure to thrive, you know, it may be worth checking it. So I think the summary point there is it's still in our armamentarium for ruling out anatomic problems, not to diagnose reflux, but should be used more sparingly than we've probably used in the past. All right, wait, let me ask you a question, and then I want to hear Rachel's answer. Let's let, Before we get, you know, I'm obviously trying to get this kid to the operating room in, in my scenario, but let's 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 back up. Wait, you get called to the NICU for a premature baby. Let's say he's uh, he's eight weeks old now, was born at uh, 30 weeks gestational age, and they cannot feed the baby. They The baby spits up. Uh, they can't get the, the, the child to, to uh, take any feeds without throwing up. They've switched to nasogastric feeds, and the child is doing quite well with nasogastric feeds. So they're calling you to place a gastrostomy tube. They usually don't call GI first at my center for this. They just would call us for a G-tube. Do you evaluate these children to see if they need a Nissen? And uh, if so, how? And then I'm going to ask Rachel the same question. Well, in that scenario, I'd be concerned with an oral pharyngeal mobility issue. Yep. And then, Uh, so go ahead. And so I would have them, well, in our center at least, we usually have our speech therapy team are the ones who, who run those studies, so I would have them evaluate the child before I did anything else. Okay. So um, if if they, uh, they they do that, they have a, uh, they find out that there is penetration, and they're tolerating their nasogastric feeds fine, and they're asking you for a G-tube, would you be satisfied with that and take them for a, G-tube, for a G-tube alone without working them up any further? Well, I tell you, that's that's to me a difficult problem or difficult question to answer. If the child was, say, a year old or a year and a half old, and this often happens, say they're neurologically impaired or even not neurologically impaired, but they are sent home with an NG feedings, then you've had time to evaluate whether or not they have significant reflux symptoms. And if you talk to the family and they really don't have much clinical reflux symptoms, then I would just do a G-tube in that particular patient. Now, the the patient that you described is, is, in my opinion, difficult to figure out what's best to do. The hesitancy for surgeons with just doing a gastrostomy is that you might have to come back and do another operation. So it's a second anesthesia and second procedure. So that's why, historically, surgeons have tried to group the the fundoplication and the gastrostomy into one operation, 
and I imagine that there are uh, a number of patients who really didn't need the uh, fund application. So at at eight weeks of of age, if the child's tolerating the nasogastric feedings, then I would consider continuing the nasogastric feedings. In your scenario, the child was 30 gestational age weeks and is now eight weeks old, so it's 38 weeks, and so the child's not likely to go home uh, anytime soon. So I would continue the nasogastric feedings and address the issue of whether or not to do a gastrostomy and or a fundoplication shortly before birth. And, and the re- Todd, I'm yeah. sorry, the reason I'd say that is that that would give you more time to evaluate clinically whether or not they have uh, a reflux component. To avoid having to do two operations. Right. Okay, Rachel? Yeah, I actually agree completely with Dr. Holcomb. I, I couldn't agree more. So I think, you know, what we typically say is that, you know, reflux doesn't cause a problem unless you can't protect your airway. And, you know, in a baby like this where clearly as soon as you put that NG in there, fine, absolutely points to oropharyngeal dysphagia. When you look at the natural history of this, the majority of kids will outgrow their oropharyngeal dysphagia by three to four months of age in the study that came out in JPGN. And so I think you're really buying time here. You're putting in an NG, you're doing small volume oral feeds, even just 10 cc's twice a day until that swallow function improves over time. I think the longer you can keep that NG in, the better. And there's data showing that in kids like this who have this amount of dysphagia in the NICU, that about 75% of them will get the NG out and not need to go on to gastrostomy. So I think absolutely the key is to buy time with that NG and, and, and just try to, you know, get that kid over the developmental hump. So I agree completely. Okay, so yet another point that you guys are teaching me. I'm probably on the more aggressive side. I don't love sending – now, I agree completely while they're in the hospital, keep them on G- NG, but, Rachel, you said uh, something I want to repeat because it's critical for, for me to know this, that you said after around three or four months, most will outgrow their oral pharyngeal. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they're probably not going to be in the NICU for that long. So you send them home with NG feeds. Yeah, so we send them home with an NG tube. The reason is because when we looked at our own data at Boston Children's and we looked at rates of hospitalization, once the gastrostomy goes in in children that aspirate from oropharyngeal dysphagia, their rates of hospitalization are about 15 times higher than if you just fed them by mouth, even in kids who aspirate all textures. So for us, we're very aggressive about continuing to feed them and not putting that gastrostomy in whenever possible. Wait, I want to repeat that. You're saying... You feed them by mouth, not just in tube. Correct. Even with even with knowing that they aspirate. Correct. So it's really important to keep those skills progressing. So even in kids who aspirate thin liquids, nectar, thick honey, thick, we will still give them something by mouth to keep the skills going, and then repeat serial swallow studies to look for signs of improvement. If we don't see signs of improvement, we're going down a different diagnostic evaluation with otolaryngology for laryngeal clefts and all of this other stuff. But in the otherwise uh, healthy child whose swallow study continues to improve, we gradually start liberalizing the amount that they're given orally. Okay, but while you're advancing them, yep. they are home getting nasogastric feeds? Correct. What is this is tell me Rachel maybe you're going to make me feel better here. I've maybe had this unrealistic fear of that 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 when you 
I, I, the tube comes out a lot. The parents have to replace it. That one of these mm-hmm. times they're going to put it down the airway. Is mm-hmm. that it, that seems sounds like it doesn't happen that often? No, it doesn't. You know, uh, we always offer families to learn how to place it so they can replace it at home. It's the key is the age group here. So the majority of the the case that we're talking about, for example, is a neonate. When they're under three months of age, it does just doesn't come out that frequently. It's trickier when they get to be a bit older. But even in the older kids, they often are able to keep it in. Now this is not always the case, but in the vast majority of cases, we're able to avoid gastrostomy tube with okay. education. This is great. So, I, so, Tom, go ahead, in, our, in our place, I don't think there's anything wrong with sending the child home for um, a month or two uh, from the NICU uh, with a nasogastric tube. Now, you've got to realize that most NICU babies or if you send them home for a month or two, they've probably already been in the NICU for a month or two. So they're, you know, three, four, sometimes five months of age. But after, at least in my mind, after four, five, or six months of age, and I'm sure that that age changes uh, depending on each individual baby's circumstances, then I think that that the caregivers can make a reasonable determination whether or not they are going to, they're progressing nicely or they're static or they're regressing mm-hmm. and whether or not a more more permanent internal feeding site is is required. So I don't think a temporary nasogastric tube is that bad and and I would agree with Rachel that in many circumstances a nasogastric tube feedings are not uh, particularly bad. The problem uh, comes with the nasojejunal feedings and that's at least in our experience or my experience, those are the ones that often re- require repeated trips to IR to have the tooth put in in the correct position and, and that type of thing. So at least at where we're talking about now, having a nasogastric tube in is is not so bad for a you know until they're three or four until they're four, five, or six months of age, and then a determination can be made whether or not they need a gastrostomy. All right, so let me feed what you just said to Rachel in a different way. So Rachel, there's a child that I described before. They were feeding and spitting up and and having failure to thrive. They tried nasogastric feeds. The baby was spitting it all up. Mm -hmm. And then they put in a nasal jejunal tube, and lo and behold, the the baby's able to tolerate everything. Mm -hmm. So... So, so let's take this baby that, that Witt just alluded to. How do you manage that child? you send them home with nasal yeah. jejunal feeds? Yeah, no, I agree completely. Those nasal jejunal tubes are a nightmare, and I, I we just don't have luck with them, to be honest. It's one thing if they're in the hospital and you can keep a close eye on those kids and make sure that NJ tube stays in. But at home, I think it's a bit of a mess. I think, you know, the way we tend to use the NJ is a test to see if Nissen is a reasonable option. Yep. What we typically will say is if, you've, if your symptoms go away with an NJ, yep. you know, then reflux likely really is playing a role here, and a Nissen may be an option. Now, there's, you know, a couple caveats to that, which is, you know, why couldn't they tolerate the G feeds, right? So do they mm-hmm. have a motility disorder such that you're worried about such delayed gastric emptying that if you wrap this patient, you're going to create a closed system and they're going to retch like crazy, um, you know, or, you know, what other reasons that they're not tolerating gastric feeds. And, you know, when you think about what other tests are in our diagnostic armamentarium, this is where you start thinking, should I get that gastric emptying scan? Should I see if this stomach is emptying at all? And if it's not, do I need to do something else like pyloric Botox or something more aggressive? 
Okay. Let me try to challenge you, which is a dangerous thing because you know so much more than me, but we'll have fun here. So my understanding, Rachel, is that these patients that have poor gastric emptying, that by doing a fundoplication, most of the time that dysmotility goes away. Yep. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's it's variable. I think it's just variable depending on the kid. You know, for example, let's suppose you had a kid who was retching pre, right? Mm -hmm. So I think when you look at the kids who are the most miserable post-Nissen, it's the kids that were retching pre-op because they retch a lot post-op too. And I think, you know, it, I think a, a little bit depends on is it gas, delays in gastric emptying that are symptomatic or are they not symptomatic? And, you know, I think that you know, sometimes changes changes what we think about. If I have a kid who's retching a lot, I'm not sure I would send that kid to Fundo. I would try to buy time with prolonged GJ feeds or, mm -hmm. I mean, if possible. But if they're not retching, okay, well, then maybe a Nissen is, is a possibility if their feeds go away with jejunal feeds. I love this algorithm. Cool. This is really, Todd, I would, yeah, go ahead, Whit. I would like to thank Rachel for not sending that child who's retching preoperatively to the surgeons and and most surgeons would be glad not to see a child who's retching before the operation because everyone will know that that child will have retching problems postoperatively. And and um, sometimes, even though you explain that to the families, there it doesn't. That little piece of information doesn't always stick. And so, when they when you see them postoperatively, you know, and they're retching, then the families oftentimes can't figure out, you know, if you did the right operation or something else happened. But but anyway, I, I completely agree with her. Is that the the when you're a surgeon and you're talking to the families about their young infants, that if the if the mother or father indicate that the child's retching preoperatively, and that's a question that every surgeon should ask the family, then you need to counsel the family that that probably will happen uh, to some extent postoperatively. I, I think that's a phenomenal point. Definitely one of our frustrations. And I want to just make sure I highlight before we move on, uh, Rachel, I've moved away from pH impedance and, and pH probes and all these things. I do the test that you sort of alluded to, which was if they don't tolerate NG but they do tolerate NJ, that's one of my best diagnostic tests that they may benefit from a fundo. I, I want to make sure that we're not missing anything from either you or WIT. So if you have a patient that went through this algorithm, by the way, can you use the macrolides even in a, a preemie like this? Yeah, you just have to watch out for development of pyloric stenosis. So again, you just have to keep keep an eye on, you know, the symptoms and make sure they're not changing once you start a macrolide. That's a great point. Okay, so you you start them on the medical therapy, you try different feeding techniques, you try the NJ feed and they do well. Mm -hmm. At what point are you thinking it's time to send this patient for a fundo? So from my perspective, I think at home NJ is not an option. I just, I think it's okay. not. So I think if this is a patient who is stuck in the hospital and they're doing great with NJ, then your options are think about a Nissen or think about a surgical J. And that, that's okay. where we would go. All right. And Whit, do you have a different yeah. thought on that or no? No, I would agree. I think okay. that uh, we don't. I can't remember the last time we actually put a, a surgical uh, jejunostomy in, so we obviously would gravitate more to doing the fundoplication. But, but I think that's a. Uh, I, I think more and more uh, clinicians are recognizing that that test about feeding uh, uh, through a, a nasojejunal uh, tube uh, 
seems to be a good test for uh, whether or not they actually truly have reflux disease. And and we are like many other centers, and we're moving away from the uh, diagnostic test to more a clinical evaluation of the patient's uh, symptoms. And what you just said is what I think is the, the general major takeaway so far in this recording, that it's becoming it's moving from diagnostic test to more of a clinical diagnosis which is this is fantastic so i will tell you Todd, yeah. that uh and i don't want to get too nuanced but i find the impedance test the ph impedance test sometimes useful in that neurologically impaired child who seems to be pretty good and you need to put a gastrostomy in them but there's something in the back of your mind that makes you think that they might have a reflux component to some of their symptoms, and you're sort of on the fence. And so sometimes it's helpful to get a pH impedance study in that scenario. But I don't think that we should be getting pH impedance studies, you know, routinely on every patient that's being evaluated for reflux. Okay, so Rachel, what is the role of pH impedance? Yeah, so I think if you have symptoms that are unusual or unex- not easily explained. So, for example, some of the respiratory symptoms, so the apnea, bradycardia episodes, those that is a reasonable indication to do a probe. Again, in our experience, 75% of the cases, those are because of aspiration during swallowing, not for reflux. But before you would ever think about doing a, a big surgery in somebody, I would do a probe in a kid who's having death spells. I, in the older kid, that's becoming more and more critical to do probes. So when you think about, for example, the teenager with chest pain mm-hmm. or for, with reflux symptoms, so the new diagnostic criteria using Rome 4, there's three different, criteria, different diagnostic um, categories now for adults and older kids, which is you can have non-erosive reflux disease, which is the nerd category, uh, where you do a scope, it's normal. You do a probe, and they have an abnormal amount of acid. And those are the patients that you'd say, okay, if they have an abnormal amount of acid, put those patients on a proton pump inhibitor for their chest pain. But now you have two new categories, which is the uh, reflux hypersensitivity. So these are the kids who have chest pain. You scope them. It's normal. You put a probe in them, a pH probe or an impedance, and what you find is that there's not an abnormal amount of reflux, but when they reflux, they feel it. So these mm. are the kids that the pH probe is normal by all technical standards, but every time they reflux, they have pain. And those are the kids that actually, or adults, who might respond to a nissen or would respond to proton pump inhibitors, but they don't have an abnormal amount of acid. And then there's the last group, which I think we worry a lot about, which are the functional heartburns, which are the kids that their scope is normal, they're acid burdened by pH probe is normal and your, their symptom correlation is negative. So there's no relationship between their symptoms and their pain. And I think those are the ones that tend to keep coming back to the GIs or presumably to the surgeons too, saying, I need you to get rid of this reflux. But really, when you do their probe, it's not reflux at all. It's just functional pain and you need to treat the pain symptoms rather than jump to fundoplication. I want to make sure that we touch on this because I don't think we talk about this as much as you do, the Rome 4 classification. So I heard you say the the, the NERD classification. Can you ex- tell us what that yeah. stands for? 
Yeah, non-erosive reflux disease. So these patients have an abnormal acid burden, so their pH probe is abnormal, but their scopes are normal. Okay. So these are the ones that are most likely to respond to Nissen or they're most likely to respond to proton pump inhibitors. And those are the kids that you guys want to see. Okay. If they're going to go if the, if the families are interested. I mean, proton pump inhibitors work great in this group, but so so might surgery. Okay. And then there was the reflux hypersensitivity and the functional heartburn. Uh-huh. So those are the yeah. three categories. Correct. Okay. Um, hey, Todd, can I yeah. ask Rachel a question? So, Rachel, one question that surgeons always have for our gastroenterology colleagues is how long is too long to treat patients yeah. with, say, PPIs or similar agents? I mean, is it is it like six months too long? Is six years too long? Or yeah. how do you all determine that? Or is no, is, is it forever? What a great question. And I think that's probably the million-dollar question in GI right now. So the new GERD guidelines, which are joint guidelines between North America and Europe, just came out within the last week trying to address this issue. And I think in light of more and more data about the negative effects of proton pump inhibitors long-term, such as you know on bones and now adult data on a variety of organ systems. The goal is always to try to wean patients off as best you can. The new guidelines are saying that you can treat for two months and then try to wean it. If you can't wean it, then you go back on the drug, but that the goal should be to try to wean two, uh, ideally two times a year to try to get patients ultimately off the drug. That having been said, there are many patients who are on it long-term and are perfectly comfortable taking their once-a-day proton pump inhibitors, and they're fine. The question is then, you know, how do we monitor these kids? What should we be looking for? And the answer is that nobody really knows Typically, I'll get a CBC blood counts and make sure that there's no signs of anemia, and I'll check a set of electrolytes, which is recommended by the FDA. But short of that, there's not a lot of other guidance from any of the organizations on how to monitor patients long-term. So even though we do have patients on them, there's not a lot of data. What I typically will do, though, is at some point, after they've been on it for two or three years, I'm going to restudy them. I'm going to scope them again. I'm going to maybe do a probe again and see what their reflux burden is rather than what we used to do, which is put them on these drugs and park them there for years. Well, let me, my, my question, um, if, you can, if you start treating the patient, we'll say at one year or yeah. thereabouts, and, and you treat them throughout their, say, childhood, yeah. isn't it likely that they're going to continue to, to need that yep. throughout their adolescence and adulthood? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the data suggests if you have reflux beyond the age of, you know, three or four, you're likely to continue to have it long term. So you're exactly right. You know, and then it comes down to do you rather have a kid on meds or do you think about surgery? And I guess that's a great segue into kind of the recurrent fundoplication issue and kind of the longevity of PPIs versus fundo. Yeah, sure. So what are your thoughts on that, Rachel? So, you know, I'm a medical person, so my bias is I'll take a PPI over a fundo any day. But I think, you know, again, my bias is that I take care of all the motility kids, so I see a lot of kids who've had multiple fundoplications. And I think, you know, our, our goal is to try to avoid multiple surgeries whenever possible. So I think if a, if a kid's symptoms are reasonably well controlled over on a proton pump inhibitor, I'll take that, I'll take that long term. But, but, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'll just say Rachel probably doesn't know uh, our background as well as we do, but um, 
that's one reason, Todd, that I, I and our colleagues in Kansas City are trying to make the perfect fund application and uh, paying attention to the technical aspects. Because in our recent prospective randomized trial, we had we had out of 107 patients that were randomized, you know, to a couple of different techniques, neither group required a redo fund application for a slip nissen. And at least Rachel, in our experience, primary reason for having to do a redo is because you have transmigration of the wrap into the chest, and so. Mm-hmm. We spent 15 years or so trying to investigate this issue surgically, and and we feel like we've come up with you know what we call you know jokingly the perfect Nissen. Uh, but the idea is that uh, I think all surgeons would completely agree with you that if we can if we can prevent the need to do redo surgeries, then it's a it's a really good option for long term therapy for uh, for patients with uh, reflux disease. So um I and actually wait, I was gonna hit on the same point and this is where I wanted to sort of highlight the controversy. As a as a surgeon, Rachel, looking around the country, we've seen that some institutions do sub- substantially more fundos than others. There's such a wide variability in the practice and how many. There are some institutions where really, really high rates of Nissens. However, we have found that some places have much better outcomes than others. Uh, and I, to give you an example, Thane Blindman just published a paper out of CHOP where their their rate of redo fundo application, and, and Thane has uh, trained specifically in this as a subsequent training in Colorado with Steve Rothenberg, his recurrence rate was 2.5%. So a lot of us debate that it's that instead of, you know, we can't really classify it as surgery because it's so different based on where it's being done, that some places really do have a technique that shows a substantially better outcome than others. And that's where, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and I think also it depends a little bit on the indication, because when we look at the kids that, in our experience, that tend to do the worst, it's the kid who had a Nissen for pulmonary reasons. So when we look at uh, kids who are aspirating during swallowing and then they get a Nissen, well, what happens is their saliva then pools in their esophagus over their Nissen, right? And the, Or they continue to aspirate their saliva, so those kids are gagging, retching, coughing all of the time. And I think it gets to the issue of did you do the wrap because they actually had reflux disease or did you do the wrap because they have multifactorial disease? And I think if you do a Nissen for the reason that you have pretty clear evidence that it's reflux, I think that's one thing and your outcomes are going to be better than if you do it because you're not sure what's going on and you're mm-hmm. trying to treat aspiration when really the aspiration is coming from the mouth. And I think those chronic cough gag retchers tend to just do a lot worse with Nissen's. So let me ask you then a thing that uh, Witt alluded to earlier, which uh, relates to that. So the neurologically impaired patient who doesn't necessarily have, maybe they have some reflux, uh, there are some people believe that these children should get a a fundoplication because they aspirate anything that gets up to their throat. And, you know, this doesn't obviously eliminate the risk of saliva aspiration and, 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 as what you suggested, may even increase it. What are your thoughts on, I'm going to ask each of you, Whit, let me first ask you, do you believe that some of these children with neurologic impairment would benefit from a fundoplication? Not unless they actually have reflux. 
So, are you more you, aggressive in those patients than non-neurologically impaired patients? Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm actually more aggressive. I think I've, I may bend a little bit towards doing a fundo in a two-month-old who's on the you know ventilator or, or has a neurologic impairment and has significant reflux. They can't get the child extubated and that type thing. Then I would be a two-year-old because if a two-year-old is tolerating their feedings well, but they sort of stop taking their feedings by mouth and they need a gastrostomy, but there are no reflux symptoms, then there's no indication, at least in my mind, to do a fundo on that particular child. So mm-hmm. so each child is different, and one child with neurologic impairment is not what another child is. One One thing that I have been impressed with as we travel around the world is that there are a lot of children who, with neurological impairment that are being seen by uh, international surgeons that their neurological impairment is much worse than we tend to see in the United States. And part of that, I think, is because the children, even children with neurological impairment, get into the healthcare system much earlier, and so their neurologic impairment is not nearly as bad as a child who might have been neglected for, you know, six, eight, ten years somewhere else uh, around the world. And so I think that those surgeons are really dealing with a significant, uh, difficult patient population, and they usually go to a fund application, and that, that's reasonable, at least in our healthcare setting. I think it's fairly, it's fairly easy or fairly straightforward at least to identify whether or not they have reflux symptoms. And if they do, then you can do a fundoplication. If they don't, then I would not do one. Okay. And Rachel, did you disagree with that? No, I think that seems reasonable. I mean, the other thing I was going to add, which has really changed kind of the management of reflux is they use the blenderized feeds in kids who are fed by gastrostomy tubes. So I think being able to use food instead of formula has really changed our rates of needing to think about nissen fundoplication because now everything we're putting through the gastrostomy tube is so heavy because we're using regular food instead of formula and where the food migrates to the antrum away from the LES and the cardia. Um, we've had much better luck managing these neurologically impaired children by just changes in diet rather than needing to go to surgery. So I think that's another big practice change that we have had that has reduced our rates of needing to send patients. That's fascinating, and I want to just repeat it because that's new to me. So it's still through the G tube, but you blenderize food, and because it's heavier, they they ask they reflux it less, and it goes towards the antrum. That's correct. So okay. we use table food, and then typically we'll make those often we'll make those patients dairy free as well. So we're reconstituting the food with non dairy products, which I think also helps to control a lot of the reflux symptoms. Okay, and uh, Rachel, you had talked about. Um, Botox. Where does that fit into your? If if they have delayed emptying, will you do Botox before you would? Uh, let's say they're tolerating NJ feeds, but they're not tolerating NG feeds. Would you try Botox in them? Yeah, I would. There's rarely a kid that I wouldn't consider trying Botox on. Um, we get a gastric emptying scan just to make sure that there's 
you know, that the emptying isn't fast, but in a kid who's retching, for example, the cardiac kids, which I think are some of the hardest ones to control, uh, we will often do pyloric Botox in that patient population to see if we can get their symptoms under control. I mean, talking about retching, you know, Botox works great not only for delays in emptying, but also with the sensory component that triggers the retching. And similarly, we use a lot of ciproheptidine or periactin to help with gastric accommodation, so uh, to help control the retching in kids. So again, if I think that the kid is not going to tolerate in this and because of the degree of retching, they'll go into a combination of pyloric Botox plus some periactin or ciproheptidine. Okay. And, and Rachel, does the pyloric Botox then have to be redone every so often? It's a great question. So, you know, typically we think about every three months, but when we're looking at these little guys, like these kids under the age of one, often what you do, or in in a kid who is having a little trouble tolerating the gastrostomy, you do one, a one-time Botox. For example, if you have a GJ in place, I'll do pyloric Botox, feed through the J, and then use the time while the Botox is active to then transition them to thicken blenderized feeds into the G port. So, for example, you can't use blenderized feeds in kids under the age of one, typically. We use some baby food puree, but not a full blenderized diet. So, often for the kids under the age of one, we'll do J-tube feeds with pyloric Botox, um, and then as soon as they hit one, then we'll use that time to transition them to G with thickened feeds. So, it's often a bridge to a different feeding regimen. Okay. When you send kids home that do have known aspiration and you let them eat. Can you <laughs> explain that? Who, Who is that in? Is that anyone that has aspiration? You let them, but you're just talking about little bits to get them used to eating, not full feeds. So it depends a little bit on what they're cleared for. Um, you know, obviously, if you have a baby who's cleared for honey, we'll send them home on full honey thick without an NG. If they aspirate all their textures, then we'll send them home typically on an NG, but then we'll feed them baby food by spoon. Got so, it. again, it's tailored to the child and what their swallow yep. study looks like. And the idea is training it, getting them yep. to – got it. All right. And, Whit, you, you had talked about the perfect Nissen. And, and t- I know that you've done so much work in this with a multi-center prospective trial. Can you tell everyone here, the listeners, what, that, what are the key elements of what you guys have seen works better? Well, about uh, 18 years ago now, the technique for Anissan really involved doing a lot of mobilization around the GE junction, making sure that we got a nice length of intra-abdominal esophagus. And in doing all that dissection, I feel like we left space between the esophagus and the diaphragmatic crua for the uh, fundoplication wrap to migrate into the chest. Now, that w- that technique was really how surgeons of my generation were being taught in general surgery, and so we were extrapolating general surgical operative privileges to children. And we, uh, in, a, in a review, we had a 12% transmigration rate, and so we made two changes. We started doing less dissection and actually minimal mobilization, and then we started placing sutures between the esophagus and the crura for the po- uh, for the purpose of obliterating that space between those two structures and we were able to drop our transmigration rate uh, to 5%. So then we did a prospective randomized trial with our colleagues in uh, Alabama and we showed still marked reduction in transmigration rate 
if we did the minimal mobilization and placed those sutures. Uh, our final study was just published in which, uh, and that was just a single center study from our institution in which we evaluated whether or not it was the sutures between the esophagus and crura that were helpful or it was the minimal mobilization. One group got minimal mobilization, one group uh, got minimal mobilization and the sutures. And this is a study I referred to earlier in that there was zero recurrence and zero redo fundoplication rate in both groups, except for the fact that in one group, one patient, the wrap loosened up. So the reason for redo was loosening of the wrap rather than transmigration. And so based on that uh, prospective trial, our feeling is that you just need to do minimal mobilization, so we don't need to try to make a, a surgical effort to bring a, a significant amount of the esophagus into the abdomen. We can just do the fundoplication wrap, not disrupt the phrenoesophageal membrane, and, it, and so far we've not had any the need for redos in that particular patient population, and all, all over our redo population, our rate's uh, certainly less than 5%, and it's trending towards 3 or 2%. So we feel, we feel that the surgical message that we should impart is that we need to do less rather than more dissection around the GE junction. And I just, I, I think that that's a huge uh, step uh, in our literature that has radically changed something we do quite often. Uh, in that we were all trained to do major dissection and that you really showed a substantial improvement in the outcome. And we have to relook at the Nissen now um, and that we've had these ideas of high recurrences and what a substantial change it was to do minimal dissection. And I think that's taking off and becoming sort of the standard now that people are doing minimal dissection. I do want to uh, point out one thing, though. You know, Steve Rothenberg always talks about that one of the more common reasons for a recurrence when patients are sent to him is that the wrap was done over the GE junction or over the stomach rather than the esophagus. And one thing you may risk by doing minimal mobilization is that more people will be doing the wrap lower than they would have over the stomach uh, instead of the esophagus, which is equally a risk of failure. Do you, do you agree with that? Yes, I think what Steve's referring to is they're doing the risk below the level of the left gastric artery. Uh, so you've got to, one of the technical points that we always emphasize with our fellows is that you've got to know where the left gastric artery is and you've got to be sure that you are cephalad to that. And if you're cephalad to that, then you're going to be at the level of the lower esophagus. We have not really had any problems uh, just doing the wrap with minimal mobilization and doing it over the lower esophagus. If there's a tad bit of stomach in there, then that hasn't really been problematic. But most of us would rather ha uh, use that technique than do the maximum mobilization and dissection and then have the uh, predisposition for developing a transmigration of the wrap. Okay. Let's uh, try to round this off with some um uh, difficult situations. So uh, you, you, both of you have spoken a lot about post-Nissen retching. What do you do when that happens? How do you work that patient up, Rachel? They come to you, they're, well, we they're not... We send them to our gastroenterologist. Yeah. <laughs> so Rachel, they, the patient comes to you, they're not vomiting, but they're retching all the time. Yeah. 
So I think it depends on where's the retching coming from, and I think this is where you really do need to study the patients. I would start with barium imaging, and I think when you're looking at the post-fundoplication patient, if they have a G-tube, you have to image them both ways, both putting barium through the G-tube, but also giving them barium from above. And this means even in the aspirating patient, you have to put a nasoesophageal tube in the esophagus and put barium in that way to see if the esophagus is emptying, because there's many times where the retching is because the fundo is too tight. Mm-hmm. And you won't know that if you just shoot contrast through the G-tube. It'll look like, oh, everything's fine. So we start with barium imaging from above and through the G-tube. And then depending on what that looks like, we often will do an esophageal motility study. And we're a big motility center, so we want to know what are the pressures looking like in the fundo. You know, And sometimes, again, if the fundo's tight, they could be retching from that. Do we need to dilate that fundo? If it looks like the fundo, the esophagus is emptying, that's not the problem, then we often will turn to the stomach and do a gastric emptying scan, get some sense of what the emptying is, and then this would be the perfect patient where you say, I'm going to try some Botox in the retcher or I'll put them on some ciproheptadine. And then there's a lovely study out of Cincinnati showing, again, that the blender ice feeds are a really big and effective therapy for treatment of post-fundoplication retching. So every fundoplication patient we have is on blender ice feeds and then plus minus ciproheptadine, plus minus Botox. Okay. Todd, uh, if I could yeah. just make a quick comment. Uh, I think uh, Rachel's raised a good point about uh, postoperative dysphagia and one of the problems it can uh, cause is uh, the retching. And and as you know, we are a big proponent of using esophageal bougies at the time mm-hmm. of the uh, fundoplication and have created a table for the small uh, baby for that. And and we have had very little need for postoperative uh, dilation. And, and I think a lot of it's because we use the uh, bougies. We, in our, all of our prospective studies, I think we've dilated one or two patients or something. So I think that the dilator can be very effective for the surgeon not to cause uh, a too tight of a fundoplication. And by the way, we use your, your guide and we love it. So are there any patients where you would do a pyloroplasty at the time of the Nissen? Certainly, if you had to do a redo, I'd do a gastric emptying study. And if there was delayed emptying, then I would do one. As the first timer, there's the rare patient who's actually maybe has had a a gastric emptying study before they've come to see me, and it shows marked delay in in emptying. And I've talked to the family about the fact that that delayed gastric emptying will likely uh, improve following a Nissen fundoplication, but they still would rather have a pyloroplasty performed. And so in that case, I think that's happened once or twice, then I would go ahead and do a pyloroplasty at the at the uh, original time. We, you know, we try to do a pyloromotomy in that setting. Sometimes we're successful, and if not, then we go on and do the uh, pyloroplasty. One um, thing that we have been doing, uh, which is we're going to have to do a multi-center study to see if this really is um, statistically significant. But a lot of the patients that have post-Nissen retching that have the normal esophagram uh, and and the Nissen looks uh, like it's okay is we do gastric stimulation in these patients. And we have been just shocked by how in the substantial number of these patients, the post-Nissen retching uh, goes away almost a day or two after we've implanted. And these are neurologically impaired patients who, you know, don't know what necessarily was done to them, but they 
that they just stop retching. So I can't give you statistics on that because we haven't reported it yet. But anecdotally, we've found that that works. L- let me ask you, uh, have either of you tried the TIF, the transoral incisionless fundoplication? So we have not. As, uh, as you know, that's really a, a um, procedure that's can't really be done in the small child, at least as we talk about it today. And uh, it's it's best used in pediatrics, at least in the adolescent. And at least at our institution, we don't do many adolescent fundoplications, so our population is not really suitable for that uh, technique. Mm-hmm. Agree, we don't do them either. Yeah, I, I know that Steve has done a series, I think, and uh, he's. I think he has plus minus thoughts on it, so I don't want to speak for him, but I, I know that it's incredibly expensive and has limited um, applicability in our patients. Hey, um, Todd, let me ask you just a question about the gastric pacing, because I think that's probably uh, on the horizon and we'll we'll be using it um, more in the future. But And Rachel, you correct me if I'm wrong, but the medications we currently use for retching the uh, – Buspar and the periactin, they they result, I think, in in fundic relaxation as opposed to gastric pacing, which sounds like it results in fundic stimulation. So, how do we how do we reconcile the fact that we've got sort of two two therapies sort of that look like they're attacking the problem in opposite uh, ways? So when you look at the, for example, gastric, the gastric stimulation, when you look at the trials of it for, for example, teenagers with nausea, for example, so the data that have come out of Columbus and things like that is that, you know, it, the effect may not just be a motility effect, but there may be a sensory effect. And some of the kids that get the best effects out of the gastric pacing actually don't have improvements in their motility at all. So I do wonder if there is just like the ciproheptidine helps with with gastric accommodation, but it's also very good for, for example, functional abdominal pain, that there may be a sensory component to this. Uh, same thing with the Botox. If you look at the Botox data, Botox doesn't reliably improve your gastric emptying at all, but it sure helps with the retching. And whether it's taking away that sensory piece to it that we are not able to quantify would be an interesting thing if we could get at that mechanism. That's, and, that's interesting. And, Rachel, I agree with you. And let me first say that uh, – w- no one totally understands exactly how and when it works. Uh, that's why we do temporary stimulation first endoscopically for several weeks to see if there's any improvement. And we do not laparoscopically implant unless they've shown a substantial improvement. The mechanism is not a stimulation to get it to contract more. That That's, that's how most of us sort of assume it must work, but it, we're finding that that's probably not true. Number one, it actually does improve receptive relaxation. Interestingly, and I don't know why it would, but it, that's one of the theories on why it works. And the other thing is the patients that, that do better with this have been shown to have almost a, um, this is me giving my sort of understanding, an arrhythmia, an electrical arrhythmia that is corrected with the electrical stimulation. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to contract more or stronger. It just coordinates it better. But but it is they they have stated that it improves receptive relaxation. Um, That's interesting, Todd. It is, and 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 I think the key point is we really don't know everyone who this works on, and that's why I I really 
always suggest that everyone does a temporary stimulation first. And we've eliminated about 30% of our patients that come in for evaluation for gastric stimulation. We don't end up doing it because they just don't get better with the temp stem. So let's talk about the, the patient who I want to talk about the, the failure and, and what options are available and how we work up the patient who, who does fail after a Nissen fundal application, whether it's by retching or they reflux shortly thereafter. Rachel, do you, do you work them up any particular way, and, and do you usually then recommend that they get a redo Nissen? Yeah, so we talked a little bit about you know the barium imaging. I should mention endoscopy is a really important part of looking at the post fundo. What's going on? You know, is the stomach getting bisected because the wrap slipped down? Do you see that endoscopically? Or when we superinflate the stomach on retroflexion, can we see a hernia that might have been missed by barium imaging because the stomach wasn't inflated? To try to get a sense of the anatomy is is really important. I typically, if they've had a Nissen and it's slipped in any way, we often will redo it. I think sometimes, though, it's important to know what the symptom is. So, for example, I think about a patient who is then, after the first Nissen, having chest pain, you look like it looks like the Nissen has slipped a little bit. You do an impedance probe, and there's no reflux at all, right? And then you have to step back and say, okay, well, is this now, this chest pain, really reflux, or is this patient developed into some other kind of functional pain? So I think the instinct for me is always, should we redo the Nissen? Yes, should we, do, we should redo it. But sometimes you have to say the symptom really is not reflux-related. They got their first Nissen 10 years ago when their symptom was respiratory. Now they're having chest pain, is this chest pain reflux or not? And that's where I would do, even do another probe and just see how much reflux there is. And I, you know, when you look at rates of reflux post-Nissen, it's somewhere about between 10 and 20 reflux episodes per 24-hour period. And if I see that on my impedance probe, I'm pretty happy that that Nissen is still doing its job. Okay. And, and, and Whit, do you have any additional thoughts about failure of the Nissen and, and a redo? Not really. I think that at least from a surgical perspective, I think the surgeons will utilize the barium study probably most of all the studies just to, just to figure out, you know, is there a problem with the RAF or not. As I mentioned earlier, 95 plus, if not more, percent of our RAF failures before we did our studies on technique, 95% of our RAF failures were due to transmigration of the RAF. And so if we see that then we and the patient has symptoms, then we feel that likely you ought to redo it. Now, if you don't want to redo it, you know, soon, that's I think it's fine to wait as long as the symptoms aren't too bad. But I can't help but think that eventually the child would need to have a redo one. And so, uh, again, our our uh, studies uh, have been trying to reduce the reasons for or eliminate the reasons for developing the RAP transmigration. But if the RAP, if it doesn't look like there's RAP transmigration, then we would uh, ask our GI colleagues, much like Rachel has described, to do endoscopies, and and we might get a uh, gastric emptying study and and look into it a little bit further before we recommended uh, doing something. Because we'd like to have evidence that there is an anatomic problem before we recommend a redo fund application. So let me ask you a question, uh, both of you. So, Whit, I think it's because we do the minimal dissection that we have not seen, or I have not seen very many transmigrations 
since adopting the minimal dissection. Oftentimes, though, what I will see is that a patient comes in with an aspiration after I've done maybe a year or so after I've done the Nissen, and they do the upper GI, and then they say the Nissen looks intact, but they're refluxing. So uh, is it that it loosens? Uh, and, and if so, do you go in, take down the whole wrap, and just even though it looks like it's intact, undo the whole thing and redo it again? So talk to me about that patient that shows that it's intact, but it's still they're still refluxing. I would have to better understand the patient's symptoms to try to put together whether one's related to the other. Uh, so if you did a extensive workup in that scenario and you thought the child actually was having reflux, but the Nissen's intact, then I would have a conversation with the family and offer them the option of going in and just what I call reinforcing the wrap as opposed to, I would not necessarily do the redo the whole wrap but I would you know reinforce it and and maybe it's gone from a 360 degree wrap to a you know a 240 degree wrap or something like that and that might be the reason uh for it but I would those are the type of patients that you really have to think about and and talk to colleagues about and work up in a fashion that you're you're comfortable that reflux is actually the the uh, child's problem. Mhm. Okay. Well, one last thing that I wanted to ask you about that's new to me and uh I've been pretty impressed with is that and Wit, I'm sure you remember at the uh, past uh annual update course, Dr. David Lanning and Dan Von Allman both talked about their experience in the esophageal dissociation. Basically, it's a gastric bypass. And uh, since then, I've uh, done one and uh, was so impressed uh, that the, the child can eat by mouth now, obviously has, has no reflux. Is this something that we should be looking at more now in, in certain patients, for, discussed both as for patients that fail anisin, but also as a primary upfront operation in, the, in, in certain patient populations? Rachel, hey, are you doing this at all there in Boston? Yeah, there's been a couple of cases of them, and um, again, this is my bias, but it's almost unheard of for us not to be able to manage these kids medically or with a Nissen. So, uh, you know, in the cases that were done, I think it was it was a multifactorial issue. I think one of the things we get into issues with is I think it's the wrong surgery for kids who aspirate saliva, and I think in our hospital that would be potentially who would be offered this surgery. Um, and I think in kids who have complex respiratory issues, it, it's not the right move. But again, you know, I'd be interested to hear when you guys are using it. With? Yeah, I've actually never done the, that operation. But I can tell you that it, it, it's an attractive option for the right patient. And I do know that there are a couple of groups who've done, you know, 15 or 20 of them or some small, relatively small number and think it's it's one of the best options for, you know, the really severely neurologically impaired child. But I, I've just not ever had to do one. I would think that if, you've, if you had a ch neurologically impaired child and you were looking at your second or third Nissen, then that would be some, uh, a patient population that I would think this might be a good option for. I don't I can't imagine it being a good primary option, but some people use it uh, as the initial uh, surgical procedure, and, and they have good results. So I've just never, you know, never used it, but I think it's an attractive option. Mm -hmm. 
Do either of you have any things that we didn't hit on that you think need to be mentioned? Yeah, there's probably one thing I just want to put out there, which is the um, patients who ruminate. Yes. Because I think those are the kids that look like they have very severe reflux, but are the wrong kids to go to Nissen. And I think just to highlight that, we've changed our diagnosis of rumination now that with a 30-minute esophageal motility study, we can see the R-rate waves um, and get to the issue of if they're ruminating or not, so that it's a very easy diagnostic study in kids that have reflux symptoms that are not responding to proton pump inhibitors. So before sending a kid like that to Nissen, you need to think about if that child's ruminating. So who should get, who should be suspected of having that? And and so can you explain again, what is the workup of those? It's a, it sounds like esophageal motility study. Yeah. So what, what, what they're doing is in typically kids who are four or five years old up through teenagers, these kids describe that they're vomiting, you know, 50, 100 times a day. And it's typically within um, minutes of starting a meal for the hour after a meal where they describe that they're, they always have to carry a bucket around with them or they need to be near a bathroom. And that's the typical history. And when you do an esophageal motility study, you put ports into the stomach. So what you see is a simultaneous contraction of the stomach with bolus movement up into the esophagus. So again, for all the world, if you did an impedance probe, it would look like this patient's having lots of reflux episodes. Mm -hmm. But really what they're doing is pushing the gastric contents up into the esophagus. And so if you wrap these patients, what we find is they continue to do this even with a wrap in place. So I would just put a word of caution for those patients that look like they have very severe reflux just to make sure they're not ruminating. That's a, that's a very important point. I'm glad you brought up, and that's exactly why I think these patients should all be evaluated by a gastroenterologist. Whit, do you have any other points to bring up, or did we no, touch I've, on those things? I've learned a lot talking with uh, you and Rachel today, and I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be part of it. And uh, I think it'll be a good podcast. I agree. It was fascinating. Yeah, this was great. And Rachel, I'm, I I know how busy you are, but I would love to have you on some of our panels where we have all the surgeons talking. We need someone who uh, knows much more about how to prevent the need for the Nissen rather than how to do it. Sure. So I I really want to thank both of you. This has been one of the my favorite recordings we've done. Uh, I know that I will really have a change in practice, and my eyes have been opened to a whole new uh, way of thinking of these patients. So thank you both, and we uh, appreciate your time. Thank you Great. so much for including us. Okay. Rachel, good to be with you. Take care. Okay. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stay Current in Pediatric Surgery. You can listen, watch, or read all content by downloading the Stay Current in Surgery app. Please send questions or comments to us at statecurrentpodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.